Uh, if you have your Bible, turn for the last time, at least until we do Hebrews again, like 15 years from now or whatever, uh, turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 10 today. We're going to finish up. Uh, this, we actually had a series of series in the book of Hebrews since the beginning of the year, and we're going to finish up this last series today. Jesus is better. Today we're going to look at Jesus is better because he gives us reasons to keep going. He gives us reasons to keep going. Look at what it says there, starting in verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. This is God's word. You know, the, the difficult thing about most things in life is sticking with it. It ain't that hard to start something, is it? It, ain't, it really is not that hard to have an idea to, to begin something. You know, if that's the easiest thing, having an idea to start something, the second easiest thing is just to start it. The hardest thing of all is to keep going, especially when it's difficult, especially when you start to, to, to experience barriers to continuing. Well, the same thing is true in the Christian life. The whole book of Hebrews really is written about this. It's, it's written to a group of Christians who are tempted to stop following Jesus. Now, it was hard for them in a lot of different ways. Some of those ways are listed, you know, here in the passage that we just read today. They, they had suffered to, to follow Jesus. They, they had been mistreated. Stuff had been taken away from them because they decided to follow Jesus. And so after a while, that got old, and, and they were starting to see an easier way out. But the writer here is encouraging them on the basis of Jesus is better to not give up. If Jesus is better than anything else, then why in the world would we turn away from him, even when it's hard, to something that seems for the moment to be easy? Well, Jesus recognized this too. He said uh, to his disciples one time, it's those who endure to the end who will be saved. 
And that, that had a special meaning to some of his disciples. Like, for example, Peter, that day when Jesus looked Peter in the eye and said, Peter, Satan has asked for you. Now imagine Jesus looking at you, you in your eye and saying, Satan has been asking for you. I know this because I've got a connection with the Father, and he's told me that Satan has been begging my Father to take you away from the faith. But Jesus looked in those same eyes and followed it up with, but I have been praying for you so that when you turn back to God, you will strengthen the brothers. Now, notice what Jesus implied in that. Peter was going to fall into sin, and in fact, into a grievous sin. Uh, Satan was going to get a part of what he asked for. But nevertheless, Jesus gave Peter the encouragement, I'm not going to let you fall fully away. And I want to tell you, this passage teaches us that Jesus does that to every single one of his children. He looks us in the eye and he says, Satan has asked for you. But I've been praying for you. I died on the cross for you. I gave you the spirit of grace. And no matter how many times you fall into sin or you drift away or you grow cold in your faith, when you have returned, not if but when, when you have returned, you will somehow strengthen the brothers and sisters because you're going to know something of my grace that you would have never known had you not faltered. Isn't that amazing? We're going to see today four reasons. There's so many reasons, but there's just four in this passage that we're looking at. Four reasons or motivations that Jesus gives us to keep going. First of all, there's the judgment motivation. You can see that in verses 26 to 31. Then we're going to see the remembrance motivation, verses 32 uh, to about 33. And then we're going to see the riches motivation, 34 to 35. And then finally, the pleasure motivation in verses 36 to 39. Judgment, remembrance, riches, and pleasure. First of all, judgment. This one probably was the one you least wanted to hear about in the list of four. <laughs> and yet, notice in the passage, it's the one he spends the most time on. Uh, all the way from verse 26 to 31, and let me tell you, he is not, he's not pulling no punches, is he, in, in the way he describes it. He is coming straight at us with the truth of God's judgment. Verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no sacrifice for sins for us. But the only thing there is is a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now that phrase, if we deliberately keep on sinning, is important to understand. You've got to understand it in the context of the whole Bible. I think he's referring to a verse back in Numbers, chapter 15, verse 30, where it uses the same phrase. Uh, it's translated in most Bibles in Numbers as, he who sins high-handedly, or with a high hand. And maybe you understand the image just by saying high-handed. You know, when you do something high-handedly, how are you doing it? Fully rebellious, right? I mean, you are set. You know what you're doing. You know that it's wrong. You know why you shouldn't do it. Uh, you know that it would be the worst thing you could ever do, and yet you're high-handedly doing it anyway. That's what he's describing. Now, it's not just intentional sins or purposeful sins. Uh, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Uh, it could seem that way on the surface, but I don't think that's what it is. Because if you look at Numbers 15, the very next story that you see after he says, he who sins high-handedly ought to die, is a man who not only messed up by choosing to sin, you see a man who has consciously rejected everything that God did and said to his people. 
In other words, it was someone who knew the good news through Moses because he had been delivered out of slavery. He knew the way God wanted him to live in gratitude because he had heard the commandments given at Sinai. And yet, after so long of following, trying to follow Moses, he says, you know what? I'm out. I'm not doing it anymore. I don't want anything to do with God. The fancy word for it is apostasy, which is basically a word that means to fall away, to profess faith one moment and the next moment to say, I am not going to profess that faith anymore. That's a reality. That can actually happen. Uh, We we saw that uh, numerous weeks ago. Tim took us through another scary passage in chapter 6 where it alluded to this same idea. Uh, This is not teaching, just like that other passage, it's not teaching that a true Christian can lose their salvation. It's not teaching that. It's simply teaching us what we saw last week. There is the possibility of professing faith without holding on to it. And when you merely profess faith and don't hold on to it, like I said last week, you won't profess it very long. There will come a time when following Jesus will become so difficult and inconvenient to you that you'll quit following Jesus. And at that moment... You've revealed yourself not to be a genuine Christian. And therefore, the writer says, there is no sacrifice for sins for you. See, this is the basic message of the gospel. It's good news, but it also has a dark side to it. There's really only two ways that your sin and mine can be dealt with in the presence of a holy God. Either there will be the sacrifice that God gives for our sins in his son Jesus in our place, or there will be us in our own place receiving what the writer here calls a fearful expectation of judgment, right? And a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's the only two options. And by definition, if someone begins in the Christian life by saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I want to follow Jesus. I've heard the gospel, I believe it, I want to follow Jesus. But yet they don't really believe it in their hearts. At some point, God is going to allow that to be exposed. It might be now, it might be a long time later. Jesus said, for some people, it'll come at the very last day. Remember that story? I mean, it's a scary story. I hate to even bring it up because it's uncomfortable to talk about. But in Matthew chapter 7, he says, people will come to him at the final judgment and say, Lord, Lord, we, we knew you. We did all these things. Look at what we did for you. Look at what we did. And Jesus will look at them and say, Depart from me. I didn't know who you were. I don't even know you. I don't have a relationship with you. My death has not atoned for your sins because you did not accept it. You did not embrace it inwardly in the heart, even though with your mouth you said you did for some reason. And so now the only thing that you can expect, Jesus says to that person, is the judgment of God which will consume his enemies. Do you see it? Now, now, why does the Bible talk like this to us? Which, by the way, it's not just this writer that says it. It's Jesus himself. I, like I, that story is just one of many. I mean, whether you, you might not know this, but Jesus speaks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. You, you can open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and just about any page where Jesus is talking, you can look on that page and find some reference to hell. Why did he do that? Was he one of those preachers that was just trying to, you know, manipulate people with guilt and fear? Like some preachers have done. Hopefully I'm not doing that this morning. I'm not intending to. That was not Jesus. 
Why was Jesus talking about hell? Because Jesus did not want us to miss the fact that the stakes are incredibly high when it comes to hearing the message about what he did in this world. The stakes are high. They could not be higher. In fact, you and I need to think about hell sometimes. We need to. We need to talk about it sometimes. Why? Because otherwise, the tendency that we have in our heart is to feel like everything else but God is high stakes. Right? My physical health, high stakes. My job, high stakes. My retirement plan, high stakes. My kids, high stakes. God, eh, when I need him, take him or leave him. That's, that's such a bad way to, to act. And it seems like, you know, these Christians who had, who had come into the Christian faith from Judaism at some point in their life, it seemed like they were starting to slip into that. What, what we've learned about Jesus is just not that big a deal. We can go back to being the way we were before we ever heard about Jesus, and everything's going to be okay between us and God. The writer here says, oh, hold on. There's only one of two ways that you can relate to God. It's either Jesus or hell. That's the reality. It's either Jesus covering you by his body given up for you, his blood spilled for you on the cross, or it'll be God pouring out his wrath upon you at the judgment seat. An outpouring that because you've sinned against the holy, infinite, eternal God will not ever have an end. Now, it ought to make us tremble to even think about that. I don't like thinking about it. I'm with you. (laughs) Hell is an awful place, and it's an awful concept in the Bible. And yet, nevertheless, don't we need it? Jesus consistently gives us the judgment motivation. Now, it's not because he wants us to love him and serve him just because we're afraid of hell. It's got to get a lot deeper than that, right? Real faith has got to get deeper than that. But nevertheless, it's a good place to start. (laughs) It's a good place to start because it's reality. Jesus, another time, uh, told a group of people uh, who were judging this other group that had died in a tragic accident. Uh, A tower in Jerusalem had fallen down and all the people in the tower died and Jesus looked at this crowd and said, do you think they were worse sinners than you are because they were caught there and you weren't? And, and, you know, Jesus knew everybody was thinking, yeah, they probably were. It's just like today, you know, when the Twin Towers fell, fell, you know, there were very unwise and unloving TV preachers who got up and said, those people were worse. You know, they, they did some bad things and that's why God did this. It was judgment. Well, they weren't reading Jesus very well, those preachers, because Jesus said about that tower in Jerusalem that fell, That's not the reason. In fact, that was a tragic accident that God allowed in his providence. And one of the reasons why he allowed it is so that you would recognize unless you repent, you're going to perish just like that. They weren't worse than you. In fact, in a a real sense, there is no sinner worse than another. Because sin, all of it, deserves judgment. Because sin, according to this passage, puts us as enemies of God. That's what it says there in verse 27. God judges his people. Those of us who are in the church, we cannot simply excuse ourselves from thinking about hell because we've already been there, done that, and now we've joined the church. That's not the way Jesus used it. When Jesus spoke about hell, it was not mostly to people who were outside of his circle 
Usually to those people, he didn't bring up hell as much. It was the people who had already committed to following him. <laughs> and he was like, hey, pay attention. The stakes are high. Jesus, one of my favorite things Jesus says in the Bible, be, pay attention to how you hear. Pay attention to how you're listening to what I'm saying because it's not just a matter of a little bit of comfort versus not, you know, a lot of comfort versus a little bit of comfort. It's a matter of heaven, hell, life, death, judgment, grace, high stakes. I wonder how, how does this motivate you personally this morning to, to just think about this admittedly terrible thing? How does it motivate you? How does it motivate you in your relationship with other people? Everybody in this room knows somebody, and the likelihood is you know somebody in this church that you can recognize they're not doing well. They're struggling. They're drifting. They're letting their guard down. How does this help you want to move towards them? Want to encourage them? Want to speak to them? I know there's many people, all of us know somebody that doesn't even profess faith in Jesus. How does this motivate you? To be more bold in going to them and raising questions, starting conversations, extending invitations. Will you read the Bible? Will you pray? Will you come to church with me? Will you come have dinner at my house? Let's talk about life. When you keep hell in front of your mind, when you keep heaven and hell in front of your mind, there's a special kind of motivation. All right, I don't want to belabor it. That is by far the, the, the most uh, gloomy of all of our points this morning. Second thing that he tells us is there's a remembrance motivation. You don't just need to think about hell, but you need to remember what it was like when you first met Jesus. You've got to remember what it was like when you first met Jesus. Uh, those of you who've been married for a long time, uh, isn't it true that as you stay married, you encounter problems that you didn't necessarily have on day one? Is that true? And... Uh, and sometimes, you know, the, the, the feeling that you had when you first stared at that other person at the altar, right, isn't always there, especially not at the, at the level that it was back then. I hope it is for you, but it's just not common. In those moments uh, when things are difficult, isn't it good to have an anniversary and celebrate it together and, and think about, talk about the way it once was, right? It's not because you want to Turn back the clock, because in some ways, things get better, don't they? And if you really think about it the right way, that they grow better over time, but they're just different. There's something about new love, young love, that just can't be repeated over and over again, because it's just by nature, it's a new thing. New things can't, they get old, right? <laughs> so remember, yeah, it, it, they do, we do, they do, everything does, right? Everything gets old. Important life lesson. There are, there are exceptions, right? But when things are old, it's always very, very good for the heart to remember what it was like when they were new and fresh. Isn't it? Even with your kids, they get more and more knuckleheaded as they grow. It's good to remember that sweet little baby, you know, who didn't make a peep, you know, who didn't talk back to you. What the writer says there in verse 32 is similar. Similar when we become Christians. Um, sometimes we, we think that we ought to be able to maintain emotional highs as Christians if we're going to be genuine Christians. And in fact, uh, you know, the church has kind of run crazy trying to produce 
uh, in people's lives, emotional highs all the time. Uh, That's not really the way anything in life works, including your spiritual life. Your relationship with Jesus will also get old. And it's really good as it gets old for you to remember a little bit of what it was like when it was new. Now, just like marriage, it gets better as it gets old. Your relationship with Jesus gets way better than it was on day one when you first knew him. But there's something about when you first knew him, the adrenaline that that you experienced, the, the excitement that was in you when you first fell in love with Jesus. He says, verse 32, remember those earlier days. You're wanting to turn away from Jesus now because it's gotten old, because it's gotten hard. Remember the earlier days after you received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. You loved Jesus so much that you were willing to give anything to have him. That's the way it is when you first fall in love, isn't it? Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution when you first saw the light. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Even when you didn't have to, you identified yourself with your brothers and sisters who were suffering even when you weren't, because that's how much Jesus meant to you in those early days. You suffered even, the, uh, even prison, some of them. You joy, listen to this, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. When's the last time that happened to you, right? When you joyfully accepted someone taking your property. That's not a very American thing to do, right? After all. And yet these early Christians, because they were so head over heels for Jesus, they did all those things. And the writer here says, and Jesus often reminds us too, remember what it was like in the early days. When Jesus looked Peter in the eyes and says, Peter, Satan's asked for you. You're going to fall. You're going to deny me three times. When he restored Peter that day on the beach, when he cooked breakfast for him, what did he do? He reminded Peter of his first love. He reminded Peter of what it was like that day when Jesus came walking up to the fishing boat and said, Hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And that day, Peter didn't hesitate like he hesitated at the high priest's house years later. He didn't hesitate at all. It says he left his nets, he left his boat, and he went and he followed Jesus. Radical in the way that it began. Now, every Christian has a different story. You shouldn't have to feel like you have to have the story of the person sitting next to you. In fact, it's going to be impossible for you to have their story. Uh, Some of us who were raised most of our lives, or maybe even all of our lives, within the church are going to have a very different story than those who come to Christ from outside of it, just by definition. You're probably not going to have the dramatic conversion experience where you can clearly see my life before Jesus versus my life after. When you're six years old and come to Jesus, you're probably not going to have a, you know, war story, uh, you know, in the first six years of your life that Jesus flipped. That's okay. But every single person can remember, I guarantee you, if you truly know Jesus, you can remember what it was like for him first to dawn on you. Don't you? You may have been small, like I was. You may have been big. You you may have had a dramatic repentance from some dramatic sin that was eating up your life. I don't know how it was for you, but you remember what it was like to first understand I'm a sinner. And that man, that son of God who became a man, is the Savior. He fulfills all my needs. 
He's the answer to all my questions ultimately. He's the reward for all the things I could not do, but he did for me. Wasn't that amazing? Whatever happened that day, that, that hour, you might not even remember exactly what day or hour it was, but in your heart, you remember what it was like. It's like the man in Jesus' story who found a treasure in a field. And because the treasure meant so much and was worth so much, he went and sold everything he had. Everything else he sold to buy that field to have that treasure. Wasn't it like that? Remember that often. Jesus encourages you to remember the early days. You can't repeat those days. You can't go back and make yourself feel the way you felt that day. And you shouldn't have to. In fact, I would argue you can feel even better things now that you have some years under the bridge with you and Jesus. Isn't that right? You can have better experiences, but don't ever forget young love. When you first heard the message of the gospel and it met you in a way that it had never met you before at the point of your need. Why should you remember that? Because just like marriage, when you remember that, you think, all right, where we are now is not so bad. In fact, where I am right now is great because I get to be there with that person that so swept me off my feet those years ago. These readers, these early Christians need to remember that. Yes, following Jesus is hard, but guess what? This is a duh statement, but guess what? You get to follow Jesus with Jesus, <laughs> which is what makes it better, which is what makes it doable, endurable. Amen? The remembrance motivation. The third thing is the riches motivation. He tells us that there in verses uh, 34 and 35. He says, not only did you suffer side by side with those who were in prison and joyfully accept the confiscation of your property, but there was a specific reason why you did that. Because you knew, it says, verse 34, that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence, he says. It will be richly rewarded. In other words, when you feel like giving up in your faith, when you're struggling and drifting and you feel yourself growing cold, one of the things you need to remember is how much you have been given in Jesus versus how much you had without him. The writer here says the math is very easy, the, the comparison. You don't have to have a math degree to figure it out. Without Jesus, you had nothing. That is, nothing that you really needed, nothing that you really, is really going to solve the problem that vexed your heart and your life. With Jesus, you got everything you need, no matter what else you don't have. See, the math's not that hard. We have better, it says, better, and lasting possessions. Without Jesus, all the things that we tend to treasure are worse and temporary, not better and lasting. What we have ahead of us is not uncertainty or the certainty of life ending and us losing everything we've ever worked hard for, which is apart from Jesus what we actually have to, to look forward to. Here it says we have a rich reward to look forward to. Just like Jesus said to his disciples, on that great day of judgment, if you're in me, you won't get the, I never knew you, and here's judgment. You'll get this. 
Come into the kingdom that the Father has prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. That's the rich reward. That's something you've got to remember. I've got to remember it every day. The treasure buried in the field, the reason why you're willing or should be willing and I should be willing to sell anything and everything else that we have in order to gain it is because it's simply greater. Now, everything in our world and in our hearts argues constantly against this. This is one of the places where, as a Christian, you've got to have your mind renewed every day. Right? Because the way that our mind is trained is to think of the possessions of this world as being of far greater value than spiritual things. After all, you can see and touch those things. You can enjoy those things. You can't see and touch the things of heaven and the things of the spiritual life. We have to learn to live according to a completely different culture, which any time you learn to live according to a different culture, it takes a lot of effort. I remember when I, I, some of you all know, I spent some time, a short time, but some time in Japan at the end of my college days in Tokyo. And I was at a school where in my class I was the only American. But there were some other Americans at the school. And most of the time the Americans all got together and hung out all the time outside of class because it was a lot easier to speak English than Japanese and uh, we had common experiences and a common culture. But I remember one of my teachers telling me, don't do that, Stan. Spend time with the Japanese students. Spend time with the other students so that if you really want to learn the language, if you really want to get immersed in the culture, spend time with them, not with Americans. You can, go, you can do that when you get back home. And so I took their advice and most of the time I spent with, with Japanese people. And one of the things I saw as, I, as we were going through that class is those who did not um, tended to not get as much out of the school. They didn't put the effort in. Uh, they, they maybe barely passed the test or whatever, but the rest of their time they were going around experiencing everything as Americans rather than trying really hard to experience it in the way that Japanese people experience their own country and their own culture. Sometimes as Christians it's the same way. When we become Christians, it's very, very easy for us to huddle up with the old culture that was within us. And to, and to just stay in that little bubble. Instead of exposing ourselves intentionally more and more to the atmosphere, to the aura, if you will, of what it is to have life in Jesus. To the new language, the new customs, the new habits. And in here he's telling us the number one new custom and habit you've got to learn is there is a different currency system in heaven. Totally different currency system. It's not... Physical possessions first, spiritual things second in the kingdom of heaven. That's the way it is on earth. That's the way it is here. Is it not? In heaven, it's God and his riches first, physical and material things. Not that they're not important, but they're second. This is why, I think, at the end of the Bible, it describes heaven as a place where you walk on gold. You say, what what does that have to do with this? On earth, people walk on people to get to gold. On earth, people walk on God to get to gold. Heaven is a world where you work on gold, walk on gold to get to people and to get to God. It's a whole different culture. And to get ready for that culture, you've got to start now. The riches motivation. You've got to remember what's really important, what's really valuable. What are you living for? 
He says, he, he criticizes them, you know, there in verse 29 and says, don't you realize if you turn away from Jesus, it's like you're trampling Jesus under your feet. You're walking on Jesus to get the stuff. Don't you realize, he says, same verse, uh, that you're treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that Jesus spilled for you rather than treating it as a holy thing? Don't you realize, he says, same verse, that you're insulting the spirit of grace rather than honoring the spirit of grace that God has given to you? The big question for us is, what are you trampling and what are you valuing? What are you treating as holy and what are you treating as common and take it or leave it? What are you insulting and what are you honoring? Jesus says, if you want to keep going with me, you got to, you got to bring in the riches motivation. you got to put the effort forth to learn the new culture of the kingdom of heaven. A place where we walk on gold to get to God. Now lastly this morning, I'm not used to preaching four-point sermons, so I'm going, going a little bit quicker. But the last one is the pleasure motivation. There in verses 36 through 39, and in some ways this is the best one of all. Because the pleasure that he talks about in these last verses is not our pleasure. We think all the time, don't we, about pleasure. Even if we don't consciously think about it, aren't we always kind of seeking it out? How, how to feel good, how to feel comfortable, how to feel at ease. And when we think about any of those things, the main thing we're thinking about is me. How do I feel? But here in these last verses, he brings up something that we hardly ever think about. The question of God's pleasure. How does God feel, if you will? How does God respond to us? What, delight does, what does he take delight in? What does he not take delight in? And here it says, the number one motivation is to remember that if you are in Christ, you are God's treasured possession. God does, in fact, take pleasure in you. Verse 36, you need to persevere, he says, so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he's promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming, that's Jesus, will come and will not delay. It'll happen in just a little while, he says. And look at what it says. My righteous one will live by faith. But, or and, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Do you notice that? There are those that God takes pleasure in and there are those that he does not. And it describes them. The ones that he does not take pleasure in are those who shrink back. The word there means to hesitate or to give up. Uh, that is, people who merely profess faith but don't actually hold on to it unswervingly. Those folks will not receive what God has promised. Like we said at the very beginning of the sermon, the only thing that you can expect if you're not truly in Christ is judgment, not, not promises, not rewards. But here he says, if you are in Christ, if you have faith, you will be called, verse 38, God's righteous one. I love that phrase, my righteous one. If your faith is in Jesus, do you hear God describing you that way? My righteous one. Mine. God told Israel, I, I got you out of Egypt not just simply to tolerate you. Not, not just to use you. I got you out of Egypt 
to greatly delight in you. You are my treasured possession of all the nations of the earth. God said to Israel, all the nations are mine, but you are really mine. My special people. And the Bible tells us this beautiful news. God still has a special people today. That special people is not determined by who you were born to or how much money you have or how successful you are or how good you've lived in your life or how bad you've lived. It's not determined by any of that. It's simply determined by this. Have you embraced Jesus, God's Son? If you've embraced Him, you have the assurance He has first embraced you. And He's embraced you not just as someone that, you know, He's not going to one day punish, someone He's going to let go. He's embraced you as someone that He's going to bring all the way in. Not just let you go, but bring you all the way in. As His son, as His daughter, as His treasured possession. There's nothing that can motivate you to keep going more than that one. I think. To know how you really are in the presence of God. In Christ, he looks at you as if you were Christ. You know, God's great announcement about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, God says that about every one of his children. Here is my son, here is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Because of what my son won for them. Because of what I'm doing in their hearts. I'll never, ever let them out of my grip. I'll never let them out of my hand. We have to know how close we are to God's heart to keep going, to endure. We can't just remember the past. We can't just remember judgment. We can't just remember the new culture that we're supposed to live in with new values. we got to remember how much God takes pleasure in us. Do you know God loves Sundays because he loves to see his children get together? He loves to be here with us. We shouldn't think that we have to beg him to be here. That he wants to be here or that we want to be here more than he wants to be here. We can't, shouldn't think any of that stuff. When you get up in the morning and you open up your, your Bible and you, you start your day out praying, you shouldn't think you want to be there more than God does. You should know and understand he wanted to be there far more than you wanted to be there. He, he, he wanted you before you ever wanted him at all. And because of that, you can go into anything that he's calling you to face, any day of the week, with confidence. We've all seen the war movies where things are particularly bad and the person thinks they're going to die and they, they pull out of their coat the picture of the person back home. Have you seen that? I mean, every war movie, right? You pull it out. And it's that person, mom, dad. You know, fiance, wife that maybe they just married right before they went overseas. Why does that picture motivate them to go? Because when they look in that picture and look in the eyes that are pictured there, that they see someone back home who's wild about them, who cares about them. And that motivates. Somebody loves me, somebody's depending on me. I'm depending on somebody else. I gotta get back home. I gotta win free. Even if I don't get back home, I gotta fight to win freedom for this beautiful person who sees me as beautiful as well. In some ways, the Christian gospel is like that. It ought to be a picture in your pocket that you pull out again and again and again to remember God loves you, God sings over you with his love. 
He loves you just as much today as he did the first day you met him. Because unlike us, God has no change. (laughs) He doesn't grow old. It's ever new. Always evergreen. Never in any way diminished with God. Now that's something you can lean on. Amen?